This is firefighter Raphael Poirier for Firehouse Subs, introducing the new Firehouse Pub Steak Sub with savory steak, crispy fried onions, and our rich Belgian beer cheese sauce. On tap for a limited time. Order yours at firehousesubs.com today. Remember, a portion of every sub you buy helps provide life-saving equipment for first responders. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Limited time only, plus tax. Participating locations. Firehouse Subs will donate a minimum of $1 million in 2018 to the Firehouse Subs Public Safety Foundation by donating 0.13% of every purchase. Welcome back to another episode of Murderous Miners. War Baby here, and this is episode number 17. To Grandmother's House We Go. When I think of grandparents, I imagine birthday checks, home-cooked meals, and warm hugs. Holidays and appearances at school functions usually round out the experience that many have with their grandparents, if they're lucky. When I think of grandmas, murder, especially at the hands of a loved one, does not immediately come to mind. However, I'm sure you aren't surprised that I'm here this week to bring not one, but two gruesome tales of slaughtered grandmas. Part 1. Joshua Wolf. All kinds of situations can take place in life that facilitate a grandparent raising their grandkids. Parents die, become incarcerated, or simply do not have the ability, means, or desire to be a parent. For the Lindleys, Raising their grandson Joshua and his younger sister was just something they were committed to. In the spring of 2000, Carol Lindley, age 56, had over two decades in the healthcare industry, and she and Joshua had just relocated to Cape Girardeau, Missouri, from Westerville, Ohio. Joshua was 16 at the time, and he and Carol had moved ahead of his sister and grandfather, who both stayed behind in Ohio. Bill Lindley was fast approaching retirement age from the Kellogg Company, so he and Joshua's younger sister stayed behind to take care of business there before joining the rest of the family in Cape Girardeau. By early May 2000, Joshua had been enrolled in the ninth grade at R.O. Jackson Junior High School, and Carol had begun her new position as the Director of Case Management for St. Francis Medical Center. Nothing appeared amiss until Monday, May 7, 2000, when at 3.20 p.m., 16-year-old Joshua Wolf called 911 to report that he was trapped in his basement and his house was on fire. By the time the fire department arrived, he was in the driveway and had already told a neighbor that no one else was in the house. Joshua immediately told firemen, then paramedics, and then the responding deputies that he was in the basement when he heard a voice yell the peculiar statement, Remember Mo. He then added that he was followed home from school by an unknown man in a white truck. The body of what appeared to be a female was quickly discovered, burned badly on the family room floor downstairs. Joshua was put into an ambulance and taken to the hospital for evaluation and was determined to have sustained no injuries. While he was being evaluated, 
the Major Case Squad went into action and began investigating what had quickly been determined to be a homicide. 56-year-old Carol Jean Lindley had been shot in the head before she was deliberately set on fire in her own home. As Joshua lay in the hospital with no injuries, authorities slowly uncovered bits of information around the scene that fast became incriminating evidence. Detectives established that Carol had been alive on Saturday, May 5th. Family members and phone records corroborated that her final phone call of that day had occurred at 3.29 p.m. That evening, investigators set out to interview Joshua as a witness. The 16-year-old recounted the events of his afternoon with a bit more detail than he had given initially. He began by reminding detectives that he had been followed home from school that day, although he hadn't lent much significance to this fact until he had heard someone call out Remember Mo, Mo having been his dad's mother, who he informed them had been murdered when he was eight. Joshua said that his dad had actually been a suspect, although the case remained unsolved. Come to think of it, Joshua mused that the stranger whom he had seen following him earlier slightly resembled his dad. This interview was recorded, and the next day, a second recorded interview was conducted. However, that time, Joshua was a suspect. Down in the basement of the burned home, ATM receipts were located in an area that would surely have burned had the fire spread just a bit further along its intended path. Bank records would later reflect that after killing his grandmother, Joshua used her bank card to withdraw several hundred dollars over the weekend. With that money, he visited two different electronic stores on multiple occasions to purchase new stereo equipment for his grandmother's vehicle. Multiple receipts were found at the scene that showed Joshua had purchased and returned a few items over the weekend. Security footage showed him casually shopping and chatting with employees about car stereos. He ultimately purchased one, which he installed into his murdered grandmother's Dodge Durango on Sunday. The Durango that had been parked in the driveway while the house burned, not in the garage where it normally was, detectives later found out. During the second interview the day after the fire, Joshua was initially combative, telling police not to use reverse psychology on him. He had been Mirandized this time and at first told the same complicated story as he had the day before. When Lieutenant John Brown of the Major Case Squad pointedly asked Joshua if he had murdered Carol, he said, did not, and that's my final statement. It did not take too much longer for Joshua to realize that he was the only suspect. He spilled the entire unthinkable story, beginning with Friday. He recalled that in the evening, a satellite company technician had installed their new dish. They spoke a bit, and the tech would later recount to police that he witnessed a small tiff between the pair. Joshua had wanted a receiver box in his bedroom, but Carol didn't allow it. The technician also recounted Joshua mentioning that he would be attending a goodbye freshman dance that night, which he did. Major K-Squad members did interview Joshua's friends and others who were in attendance at the dance. No one reported any unusual behavior. On Saturday, Carol Lindley spoke with her daughter, 
her sister, and lastly her brother at around 3.30 that afternoon. That was the last time anyone had contact with the 56-year-old. Joshua stated that as his grandmother sat in a chair in the family room watching TV downstairs, he shot her in the head with a twenty-two caliber rifle from the second-story landing above. He said that he was mad at her and that they had been fighting. After school on Monday and before setting the fire, Joshua admitted to disposing of the spent shell casing down a pipe outside a neighbor's home, which he thought led to the septic tank. Joshua said that he intentionally put towels into the washing machine so that he could have a reason not to have heard any of the suspicious noise that would have been made by a stranger murdering his grandmother and torching the house above him. He told investigators, who by now realized that this child was cunning and manipulative, that he felt his plan was foolproof. To recap, this 16-year-old attended a dance on Friday night, shot his grandmother in the head on Saturday afternoon, then started withdrawing her money. He removed the factory-installed stereo and ultimately visited two stores, purchased and installed the one he preferred. He got out more money on Sunday, returned the other stereo, and visited another store for supplies. Monday, the day of the fire, he drove himself to school, stopping at the home of his carpool driver to tell her he no longer needed a ride. He said his grandmother had been given a new company car and that he would be driving the Durango. At R.O. Jackson Junior High School, he told teachers and administrators that although he had only been there for a week or two, they would be returning back to Ohio after all. He turned in his books and closed out his lunch money account. He let the office know that his grandmother would be in later to complete the process and left campus around 1 p.m. Joshua returned home to finish off his plan. He poured gasoline all over Carol Lindley's body and all around the family room. Gasoline was poured up the stairs and down the hallway. He poured it in the guest room, on his bed, on the pair of bloody shoes, and on the shotgun leaned up against the wall. He changed out of his gas-soaked shoes and left those to be burned as well. He cut the grass to put the smell of gasoline on him. Joshua then turned on a burner on the kitchen stove and proceeded to ignite the fire. He went down to the basement to wait until he thought was the last minute before calling 911. Joshua told dispatchers that he was trapped in the basement by the fire and that to his knowledge he was the only person in the house. Renowned senior psychiatrist with the Biggs Forensic Center, Dr. Jerome Peters, performed a forensic evaluation of Joshua and felt that in his professional opinion, Joshua knew exactly what he was doing when he tried to burn their house down to cover up the fact that he had murdered his grandmother in cold blood. Joshua Allen Wolf was charged as an adult with first-degree murder, armed criminal action, and arson, and went to trial in Boone County on a change of venue. He pled not guilty by reason of mental defect. In the end, Joshua received two concurrent life sentences, plus seven years for the arson. The intention was that the teenager never be eligible for parole. The defense immediately filed appeals to the conviction. 
Remember during Joshua's second interrogation where he was Mirandized? Okay, now recall when he replied to the lieutenant's accusation of murder with the statement, did not, and that's my final statement. Well, Joshua claimed that this was his roundabout attempt at pleading the fifth and invoking his right to remain silent. The second appeal asserted that the court did not allow enough time prior to the start of trial for Joshua to have adequate psychological evaluations completed. Regardless, both points were rejected by Missouri Court of Appeals, and the concurrent life sentences and seven years for arson were upheld with no eligibility for parole. Now let's jump ahead to 2016 and the Supreme Court ruling on Miller v. Louisiana ruling life without parole unconstitutional for juveniles. Joshua saw this as a chance at freedom. Shortly after the announcement that he and 82 other juvenile offenders in the state of Missouri would be retried, he scheduled an interview with the media. It was ultimately canceled, however, he did issue a written statement. Here is some of what Joshua Wolf, then 32 years old, had to say in 2016, after 16 years of incarceration. I am not sure if you are aware of my grandfather's unconditional love and support of me. It was his wife that was killed when I was 16. Even though my crime was directly against him, he still chose to extend unconditional love, forgiveness, and support to me to such a degree that he hired private attorneys to fight for me. Papa wanted me to receive help instead of being punished with incarceration. Papa Bill Lindley said in an interview that he felt that his grandson had made great progress and thought he was ready to be released from prison ending with, I have forgiven Joshua. His case did reach the Missouri Supreme Court in 2016, but was denied. A new law was in effect in Missouri, which would allow juvenile lifers the chance for parole after 25 years. Even though the court has previously stated that he would never be eligible for parole, he now will be, in 2028, around the age of 44. Regardless, Joshua petitioned for a writ of habeas corpus, an official term for a court order that would require government officials to provide a valid reason for his continued incarceration. By this time, Joshua Wolf had been incarcerated longer than he had been alive when he committed his crime. The Supreme Court of Missouri denied his writ of habeas corpus, effectively exhausting all appeals at the state level on June 3, 2018. Joshua Wolf, now 34, has a petition for habeas corpus relief currently pending at the federal level. He's currently housed at the Potosi Correctional Center in Mineral Point, Missouri. There is one uncomfortable element to this case that I haven't mentioned yet, and frankly, I almost don't want to. Don't say I didn't warn you. Skip ahead 10 seconds now if you don't want to hear something seriously disturbing. In both confessions Joshua made to police, he told them that he sexually violated his grandmother's corpse. Detectives believed him, however they couldn't charge him with anything because the fire had burned away any evidence. The only other question I had about this case was why no one ever addressed the fact that he was 16 years old, driving, 
but in the ninth grade. Part 2 Antonio Barbeau and Nathan Pop. Sheboygan, Wisconsin has always seemed a snapshot of Midwestern America, a picturesque community where residents were proud to raise their families and call themselves Sheboyganites. In late summer 2012, two 13-year-olds named Antonio Tino Barbeau and his friend Nathan Pop resided there and appeared to be typical American teens. On September 19th, just after one in the afternoon, Tino Barbeau's grandmother Judy Offit went to her mother's house to see why she hadn't kept their plans. She saw her mother's car wasn't in the garage and was relieved in thinking that she was out doing something else. However, as Judy turned to leave, she glanced toward the garage entrance to the house and spotted a blanket. Then, her mother's feet and blood. Broken-hearted, Judy makes the expected phone calls, speculating that her elderly mother had had some sort of accident. What Judy and other family members don't suspect at this time is that one of their own loved ones is responsible for this heinous crime. Judy's grandson, 13-year-old Tino Barbeau, was technically a runaway at that moment, an escapee from the county juvenile detention center. He was at his friend Nathan's house two days before Judy found her mother's body. Tino had brought with him a hatchet. Nathan said Tino told him that they should go to the home of his 78-year-old great-grandmother, Barbara Olson, to kill her and rob her for drug money. Nathan grabbed a hammer and had his mother unknowingly drop them near the house. She thought she was dropping them off in the West Wind Bluff subdivision to hang out with friends, but instead was transporting the teens with weapons hidden in their pants to commit a terrifying premeditated crime. Once in the clear, Tino and Nathan enter Barbara's home on West Ridge Drive, uninvited. They make their entrance through an unlocked side door and almost immediately encounter Tino's great-grandmother, much to their dismay. According to Nathan, Barbara Olson told the boy she would call Tino's mother, Nikki Olson, to let her know that he was there. As she turns around to make the call, Nathan said that Tino hit his great-grandmother in the back of the head with the blunt side of the hatchet. She fell to the floor. Nathan stated that 78-year-old Barbara Olson was moaning, asking them to stop and holding her head. Tino struck her several more times while Nathan hit her with the hammer. Fond du Lac County Medical Examiner Doug Kelly would later testify that Barbara Olson sustained approximately 27 blows to the head. The final blow was delivered by Tino with the sharp side of the hatchet. It took the strength of both boys to pull it free. The house was then ransacked. Barbara's purse, loose change, and jewelry were all gathered up. The murder weapons were tossed into the trunk of Barbara's car parked in the garage. The teens made a futile attempt to drag Barbara's body to the car on a blanket 
However, the children lacked the necessary strength, leaving her abandoned by the door where her daughter Judy would spot her two days later. 13-year-old 8th graders Tino Barbeau and Nathan Pop took off in Barbara's car, heading to the local bowling alley. The car was abandoned out back, unlocked, with jewelry lift plainly visible on the back seat and keys in the car. Bate left in hopes that the vehicle would be stolen and the murder attributed to other suspects. Security camera footage showed the two walking along a street, one of the pair casually swinging the victim's stolen purse before it was abandoned in a storm drain. The kids used the $155 they murdered for to buy pizza and marijuana. A quick trip to a convenience store was made and the boys were seen there on security camera footage purchasing cleaning wipes, which they used to try and clean up the car. Tino self-surrendered to the juvenile detention facility the next day, Tuesday, September 18th. Following the discovery of his great-grandmother's body, investigators got a warrant to search his locker there. Bloody shoes and clothing were found inside. Once Judy alerted authorities to her mother's accident, they had gone into action rapidly, especially due to the level of violence present at what turned out to be a crime scene. The neighborhood was canvassed. Neighbors were questioned. One neighbor stated that when he returned home from picking up his daughter from school that Monday, he spotted Barbara Olson's gold Buick sedan speeding westbound down Westridge Drive. That took place a little after 4.30 p.m., two days earlier on September 17th. This was the same day that Tino was missing from the detention facility. The Buick was located through utilization of the OnStar system. On the floor of the front seat, police found schoolwork with the name Nate at the top. Barbara's purse was pulled from the storm drain, three houses down from Nate's house. The bloody wipes and some work gloves were pulled from bushes behind the bowling alley parking lot. Meanwhile, at Nathan Pop's house on South 13th Street, quarters, Barbara's gold watch, and bloody clothing and shoes were located. He provided officers with graphic details of the plan, murder, and aftermath. When Tino was confronted, he initially denied having any knowledge but it didn't take long for him to admit his involvement. He told police, however, that he and Nate had devised the plan together. Tino and Nate were arrested on Thursday and officially charged with Barbara Olson's murder on Friday, September 21, 2012, five days following the monstrous crime. The 13-year-olds were charged as adults with first-degree intentional homicide, making life sentences a possibility. Cash bond was set at $1 million each. The close-knit community was aghast. There hadn't been a murder in Sheboygan Falls since 1996, with the entirety of Sheboygan County averaging only one or two first-degree murders per year. Tino Barbeau initially pled not guilty by way of mental defect or disease. He had reportedly sustained a head injury after being struck by a car when he was riding his bike at the age of 10. Many who knew him said he was never the same following that head trauma. 
A mental competency hearing was ordered for Tino Barbo, and he was ultimately ordered fit to stand trial. He and Nate would be tried together, but Tino ended up withdrawing his not guilty plea, instead pleading no contest. He would not be going to trial, but he would testify against his friend. This would not result in any reduction in his sentence. Nathan Pop's trial took place in June 2013. At testimony, Tino and Nate gave pretty different versions of events. Nate's defense lay in his claim that he didn't think that Tino was serious about killing his great-grandmother. Once there, he said he only went along because he was afraid Tino would turn and hit him too. After seeing his friend strike his own great-grandmother in the head with an axe, he testified that he was too frightened not to hit Barbara Olson twice with the hammer he had brought from home. Apparently, the boys had also brought with them masks to cover their faces, although they didn't use them. The jury had to view numerous gruesome crime scene and autopsy photos, depicting multiple cuts and fractures visible to the victim's head, face, hands, and arms. In the end, though, the jury determined that Nate shared blame with Tino for the murder, and he was found guilty of first-degree intentional homicide on June 30, 2013. On Monday, August 12, 2013, Antonio Barbeau was sentenced to life in prison with eligibility for parole in 36 years, at the age of 50. Tino entered the adult prison system at the age of 17 and is currently housed at Wampum Correctional Institution. In my 24 years on the bench, I've never seen anything of this nature, not even close. Circuit Court Judge Timothy Van Akron said at sentencing, It gives me great sadness to see someone of your age going into the system. The following day, August 13th, Nathan Pop was sentenced to life with eligibility for parole in 31 years at the age of 45. Nate also entered the adult prison system at the age of 17 and is currently housed at the Columbia Correctional Institution. Nate's family contended that he had the mental capacity of a 10-year-old, and that made him susceptible to the peer pressure exerted by the more forceful and violent Tino Barbeau. Regardless, the jury did not believe that was a factor, nor did anyone entertain Tino's previous head trauma as a viable component either. Tino will become eligible for extended supervision beginning in 2048 and Nate in 2043. The first two of Antonio Barbeau's subsequent three appeals were denied in November 2013. Circuit Court Judge Timothy Van Akron did not agree that life with parole eligibility was unconstitutional for a juvenile, as the defense contended nor did the judge find that the abolishment of the state's parole system and its replacement with the extended supervision program warranted a new sentence. He simply amended it. An appeal was then filed with the Second District Court of Appeals, who upheld the circuit court decision in Tino's life sentence in June 2016.
Latino's mother Nikki Olson said following Nate's guilty verdict at trial, Everybody loses in this case. The whole situation is just sad for everyone. It's sad for the victim's family, it's sad for the boys, and for Nate's family too. As always, thanks for joining me for this episode 17. We now have a Patreon page and a coffee profile online if you'd like to donate to the show. For t-shirts, totes, and mugs, find us on Spreadshirt. If you're in the L.A. area or want to get yourself there, join us on October 6th for a true crime podcast meetup at Idle Hour Bar in North Hollywood. Murderous Miners, along with the Murderish Podcast, White Wine True Crime, The Cleaning of John Doe, The Pretty Scary Podcast, Crime with Rich Slayton and John Shevsky, and The Pros and Cons Podcast will be there to mingle with listeners. But the most exciting part is probably the special mystery guest. For true crime podcast lovers, this guest will knock your socks off. There will be celebrity guests in attendance, so keep checking back as we announce hints about the mystery guest and stay informed of other updates. All links are in the show notes and find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Snapchat at KillerKidsPod. If you envision yourself behind the mic, visit ResonateRecordings.com today to have your first episode produced for free. They have the professionals, the expertise, and the experience to make your dream show a reality. Come back soon for another insomnia-inducing true account of the damage kids can inflict on murderous minors, killer kids. But until then, don't be scared. What's up, Home Trees? It's me, Chris. And Corey. And Donnie. From the More Gooder Than Podcast. For each episode, the three of us pick a thematically similar movie. Like Dances with Wolves, The Last Samurai, and Avatar. Or Deep Impact, Armageddon, and Space Cowboys. And then duke it out until one movie is crowned most goodest. Three movies enter, one movie leaves. Ironically, Thunderdome was not the winner when we tackled the Mad Max trilogy. You know why, right? I... Oh, yeah. We don't need another hero. Hey, uh, where can people find more good of that? You can find us on Twitter at MGT Podcast, our website, mgtpodcast.com, and on Instagram and Facebook at more good or that. We're on iTunes slash Apple Podcast. You can find us on Podbean, Stitcher, Google Play, and any other podcatcher that you can think of. Remember, it's not just good, it's more good or then. Should you eat that cake in the break room? What makes the ultimate office pet? Is the shuffling from the next bathroom stall a demonic rite or something far worse? On the Work Life and Balance podcast, you can find terrible answers to some of your most uncomfortable questions. Whether it's coming to work with late-stage syphilis or staying on trend with pants full of angry raccoons. I'm Frank Eastman. And I'm Derek Lewis. Two guys who ought to know better on Work Life Imbalance. Find us at WLICast.com on iTunes, or wherever fine podcasts are found. My-
My name is Hunter. And I'm Haley. And we're your hosts of Murder and Such, a podcast about true crime, serial killers, and other dark subject matter. Join us while we fill your ear holes with some crappy comedy and disgusting tales. You can now find us on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, and all of your podcatcher services. You can like us on Facebook, Instagram, and follow us on Twitter at Murder and Such. Hope to hear from you guys soon. Bye. Bye.